You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to Dig, a history podcast. There wasn't a soul in London, much less the neighborhood of Smithfield Market, who hadn't heard of the Cock Lane Ghost. In 1762, the narrow London street was crowded with throngs of onlookers and busybodies who wanted to know if the rumors were true. A young girl at 20 Cock Lane, Elizabeth... Sorry. Oh, great. <laughs> I know. A young girl at 20 Cock Lane, Elizabeth Parsons, was said to be possessed by a restless spirit. All suffered from fits, and several witnesses had seen an apparition in the building. But the Cock Lane ghost's biggest claim to fame was its alleged knocking and scratching at all hours of the night and day. Many witnesses, including men of high esteem, had witnessed the frightful sounds. They quickly devised a code to communicate with the ghost, who claimed to have been murdered by her lover two years earlier. This had Londoners up in arms. Everyone took a side. Methodists and Anglicans viciously argued over the possibility of contact with the dead. London newspapers wrote daily updates about seances, investigations, and hearings that sought to uncover the truth behind Scratching Fanny, <laughs> as the ghost was named, and her suspicious death. Londoners used the mysterious happenings at Cock Lane as a vehicle to debate religious difference, premarital sex, fraud, murder, and the vulnerability of some of London's greatest minds in the face of superstition. I'm Sarah. I'm Marissa. And we're your historians for this episode of Dig. This story begins with a moneylender from Norfolk named William Kent. Kent married a woman named Elizabeth Lines in 1756, and they lived happily together in a town called Stoke Ferry, some 80 miles from London. Elizabeth quickly became pregnant, and her sister Frances, known as Fanny, common nickname for Frances, mm -hmm. um, Lines, came to live with the happy couple to help her sister around the house during her pregnancy. 
Elizabeth died during childbirth, probably of childbed fever, an infection of the uterus. This was not uncommon. Right. Nine in every 1,000 births in England ended in maternal death at this time. Elizabeth and Kent's child, a boy, survived only a few weeks, during which time Fanny stayed on to care for him. Obviously, it was an emotional time for everyone. Kent and Fanny grew attached to each other and quickly became lovers. But they were devastated to learn that canon law prevented them from legally marrying. Because Kent had married Fanny's sister and the union between them had produced a child, it was illegal for Kent to marry Fanny. In January 1759, Kent decided to move to London, leaving Fanny behind with her family. The two wrote love letters back and forth. Kent told authorities later that he, quote, constantly received letters from the young lady filled with repeated entreaties to spend the rest of their lives together. And notwithstanding this caution of his in going to London, her affections were not to be stifled or eradicated from her breast. <laughs> He's, he acts like, oh, it's all her. Like, yeah, she yeah, just, yeah. It's all her. She's, she's hysterical. Yeah. <laughs> What's the big idea? <laughs> that was our good, that was a transatlantic uh, accent. Yeah, I love yeah, yeah. it. I love it. Okay. Um, five months later, Fanny came to London to live with Kent. The two decided to feign marriage, figuring it would be easy enough. And it was. They quickly found lodgings to rent in Cock Lane from the clerk at their new church, uh, St. Sepulchre's. Kent, Fanny, and their maid Esther, quote, Carrots Carlisle. Yeah, because she had red hair, so they this called is, her Carrots. This is 100% wackadoo, no, right? I know. She, her right. name is Fanny. They live on Cock Lane. They go to St. Sepulchre, so, and they have a maid named Carrots. Carrots. Like, you just made yeah, this story. Yeah, no, this is for real. Um, <laughs> their maid, Esther Carrots Carlisle, uh, moved into the tiny efficiency um all three of them were living together. Their new landlord, Richard Parsons, was known to be an alcoholic, but his neighbors in Smithfield regarded him with respect. Um, so he was, you know, kind of, kind of, you know, but he, he was questionable, but he was generally a respected yeah, yeah. guy. He borrowed money from Kent shortly after they met. Remember, he's a money lender. Kent is a money lender. Right. Parsons agreed to pay him back at the rate of one guinea per month, but before his first payment was due, he discovered the Kents were not legally married. Dun, dun, dun. Right. So um, Parsons lorded this over Mr. Kent and drank away his guinea per month instead of paying it back on time. In the meantime, Fanny, known to the neighborhood now as Mrs. Kent because they're pretending to be married, mm -hmm. became pregnant. For several nights, the pregnant Fanny Lines shared her bed with Parsons' 10-year-old daughter, Elizabeth. And we should note here, not unusual, right? Not, right. not all that uncommon. Yeah. Um, beds were in short supply. Exactly. Kent was probably just away for the night. Fanny normally shared her bed with carrots, but for <laughs> I'm sorry, it's so stupid. They literally they just call her. No, that. I understand. They don't ever yeah. call her. It's Esther. like Anne of Green Gables, but that's yeah. a different story altogether. Um, so carrots was usually uh, snuggling with Fanny, but she wasn't tonight. Instead, um, she chose Elizabeth, um, this young girl, as a bed buddy on these nights instead. Fanny and Elizabeth were allegedly disturbed by knocking and scratching for several nights in a row. Mrs. Parsons suspected that it was the cobbler next door. But when the noise happened on a Sunday, they knew it couldn't be him because no one worked on a Sunday. Right. I mean, when it happened, they were like, oh, my gosh, that's proof. It's definitely yeah, an apparition. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> the logical next Yeah, the, the burden of proof was not <laughs> quite what it is today. Right. Um, 
So with Fanny about to give birth, the Kents moved to new lodgings that would be more appropriate for a growing family. And Kent pursued Parsons in court, suing for the three guineas that were owed to him. At the time, most people thought it was mean-spirited of Kent to sue over what amounted to very little money for him. Right. Um, And he would come to regret it. Things went badly for Kent from this point forward. Fanny and their unborn child died in the ninth month of her pregnancy. Her physician had diagnosed her with smallpox, and that was determined to be the cause of her death. Um, Several people, including um, her apothecary and her maid Carrots, attended her uh, prior, like when she was on her sickbed. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. While Fanny lay dying, an apparition appeared in 20 Cock Lane. A local publican, James Franzen, as well as the entire Parsons family, witnessed a ghost passing through the rooms of the house. I, I love this. Everyone's just like, dude, the yeah. ghost passing well, through the house. There's this ghost just walking around. Parsons went back to Franzen's pub and is recorded as saying, give me the largest glass of brandy you have. <laughs> Over copious amounts of brandy, Parsons and Franzen postulated that the ghost must have been Elizabeth Lines, haunting Cock Lane because she was angry that her widower was shacking up with her sister. To everyone's shock and horror, Fanny herself died shortly thereafter on the night of February 2nd, 1760. Kent continued to make enemies after Fanny's death. Her will left her estate to him. Her brother died shortly after she did, and he left a portion of his estate to her. So this portion, along with the proceeds from the sale of a family home, were forwarded to Mr. Kent, even though her family didn't believe he deserved it, especially after he deflowered their sister. Kent quickly remarried in 1761. He wastes no time. Yeah. Um, But his money troubles with Fanny's family continued. There was a mistake with the settling of the estate, and it was found that Fanny's family owed their realtor a significant sum that was to be split between Fanny's heirs. They all paid up, but Kent refused because he's a dick, I guess. (laughs) Um, He again found himself in court over money. The knockings and scratchings at 20 Cock Lane subsided until January 1762, shortly after Kent's suit against Parsons was settled in Kent's favor. There were many witnesses to the strange sounds in Kent and Fanny's old room, and Elizabeth Parsons began having convulsions, surely symptoms of demonic possession. The physicians attending her heard the strange noises as well. Parsons had the wainscoting removed from his walls because that's where the sounds appeared to be emanating from. But it did not stop the knocking and scratching. Desperate for help, Parsons contacted John Moore, a respected scholar and preacher who was known for his Methodistical sympathies. Moore and his colleagues began conducting regular seances at the Parsons home over the resting body of Elizabeth Parsons as she lay in bed. This was not exactly new for Methodists. In 18th century England, Methodists were known for their emphatic spiritualism. They desperately sought visible signs of grace, sometimes understanding hallucinations and hysteria as evidence of the divine. Theologian John Wesley, who co-founded Methodism with preacher George Whitfield, had a ghost story of his own. While Wesley was away at university in the 17-teens, I think it was 1715 is when mm-hmm. it started, his childhood home was purportedly haunted by a poltergeist. Wesley's father named him Old Jeffrey. 
Um, Old Jeffrey groaned, knocked, scratched, and clanged around the Wesley home for years. One time, Wesley's father called the ghost a deaf and dumb devil when he got mad. He was like, you deaf and dumb devil. And um, Old Jeffrey responded by pushing him to the floor. (laughs) Oh, teach you. Wesley and other important Methodist leaders were criticized for their superstitious beliefs and hauntings. Poet Robert Southey said Wesley, quote, accredited and repeated stories of apparitions and witchcraft and possession. Southey was horrified by Wesley's voracious credulity, so silly as well as monstrous, that they might have nauseated the coarsest appetite for wonder. There was a lot of anxiety in London about Methodism at the time. Methodists were technically still Anglicans for most of the century. They did not begin their gradual separation from the National Church until the 1780s, and they did so by establishing Methodist ministries in the former American colonies. Um, Their nascent separatism was perceived by Anglicans as a challenge to the Church of England and to the nation itself. Um, And this made many of the English uneasy. Um, what they called, quote, methodistical, um, quickly became a byword for people who were superstitious, irrational, unpatriotic, and religiously unorthodox or overenthusiastic. This c- kind of cracks me up a little bit because, like, Methodists, Methodism is, like, a very, like, today, like, it's, like, a very normal. Yeah. Run-of-the-mill right. Protestant right. denomination, not like, like you know, they're not speaking in tongues. It's not they're um, not poisoning themselves with snakes and right, right. charismatic or anything yeah. like that. It, they're just regular old Protestants, right? Um, so it's kind of funny to hear how like <laughs> wackadoo they were, right? So at the same time, Methodism was was incredibly popular. 18th century theology and popular culture had thus far been dominated by strict rationalism. There had been so much emphasis on scientific reason that many English men and women felt spiritually and emotionally unfulfilled. When asked how she could believe in events such as hauntings and possession, John Wesley's sister Emily responded, I was so far from being superstitious that I was too much inclined to infidelity, so that I heartily rejoice at having such an opportunity of convincing myself, past doubt or scruple, of the existence of some things beside those we see. Methodism was attractive to Anglicans who, like Emily, felt starved for spiritual excitement. Right. And that makes sense. I think. It does. I, She's yeah. saying, well, this, I was so bored mm-hmm. that I just found my mind wandering and mm-hmm. doing, you know, I don't know, things that were against my religion, but now this kind of satisfies me. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the Cock Lane ghost played on this desire for spiritual excitement. John Moore, several other clergy who sympathize with the Methodist cause, members of the general public, and even Horace Walpole, the Earl of Dartmouth and the Duke of York, Um, these were all super fancy men, um, jumped at the chance to attend seances in the Parsons' home. A local paper, the Public Ledger, covered the ceremonies in detail, publishing serial updates on the Cock Lane ghost. The ghost quickly earned the unfortunate nickname Scratching Fanny. Which sounds, it's like a double entendre, right? Because it's Fanny is literally scratching at the walls. Right. But it also makes it sound like you're scratching. Right. And in in, in England, a Fanny Fanny is is something different. It's a vulva. So it's like scratching. Yeah. It's it's dirty. They're super into dirty stuff. At least in the United States, it's like you're scratching your butt. Yeah. Which is like a little bit less gross. Not gross. I mean, it's not gross. Depends on what part. We shouldn't be sex shaming. Okay. No, it's a little bit less. 
what I'm trying to say graphic, but that's not right. Yeah, graphic explicit. is the word. Okay, yeah. a little less explicit. Yeah. Okay, okay, okay. The seances were facilitated by John Moore and an elderly servant of Parsons named Mary Fraser. It was assumed the ghost had an affinity for Elizabeth Parsons, who was now about 12 years old. The knockings and scratchings seemed to follow her wherever she went. So before the seances were conducted, she was undressed and tucked into bed, sometimes with her younger sister and sometimes alone. This was all in view of an audience. She was occasionally inspected for signs of fraud. After Elizabeth was in bed, Mary Fraser would prance around the room calling the ghost to her. Moore devised a system to communicate with the ghost. He asked the ghost questions and instructed the spirit to give one knock for yes, two knocks for no. William Kent, now happily remarried, read in the public ledger that the ghost was purported to have been a young woman named Fanny Lines who'd been poisoned by her lover who put red arsenic in her pearl. Pearl is a, an alcoholic drink that's made by infusing wormwood and um, other bitter herbs into ale or beer. That sounds horrible. I, yeah, it does sound kind of gross. Um, Kent realized that he was this lover and that the cockling ghost was purportedly his dead ex and that most importantly, she was accusing him of murder. Um, he approached John Moore immediately and insisted on speaking with the ghost because, you know, he's like, I have business with this ghost. Let <laughs> <laughs> <I> me... <mean, coughs> And then I choked to death. So a few days later, Kent attended a seance at 20 Cock Lane. Mary Fraser and John Moore did their usual routine to summon the restless spirit. Once they had its attention, they asked it, Are you the wife of Mr. Kent? Two knocks. Did you die naturally? Two knocks. By poison? One knock. Did any person other than Mr. Kent administer it? Two knocks. And the charade continued. The spirit indicated that her maid, Carrots, had witnessed her poisoning. At a subsequent seance, Carrots denied knowing anything about a poisoning. After some time, Kent asked the ghost if he would be hanged for this crime. And the answer was a single knock. Which means yes. Yes. Just to remind you. At this point, Kent was panicking. Understandably. Yeah, right. He's freaking out. Um, a media frenzy ensued between January 18th to the 20th. So these dates are very specific, but if you look at newspapers, I mean, there was several stories and like several five to ten letters of to the editors on these days. People reached are, a climax. Right. Mm -hmm. um, most London papers picked up the story, publishing updates in every issue. And a lot of newspapers had two issues per day right. at the time. Um, crowds flocked to Cock Lane, hoping to witness the knocks of scratching Fanny. Detectives at the behest of Methodists, desperate to vindicate their faith, began investigating Kent in the allegedly mysterious death of Fanny. Oh, so it becomes right. So about the Me Methodists, yeah. Too. So the Methodists are like, oh, we got to prove this right to to, sh to vindicate ourselves. Mm -hmm. um, skeptics were equally interested in investigating the nature of this so-called spirit. Um, newspapers contacted the Parsons and Fanny's family, who, after protracted legal battles with Kent, were all too happy to throw him under the bus. And, you know, maybe this is a good lesson to not be a dick about money because, right. you know, you'll get it'll get back to you. Right? Yeah, you'll get yours eventually. Right. Right. An informal commission was formed to inquire into Fanny's death. The most distinguished member of the commission was Dr. Samuel Johnson, a famed writer, devout Anglican, and Tory, who is now known as England's most famous man of letters. Dr. Johnson was determined to uncover what he suspected was fraud on Parsons' part. Johnson was not the only suspicious party. Several other skeptics joined him in another seance in Cock Lane on January 20th. 
The commission gathered in Fanny's old room around the resting figure of Elizabeth Parsons, now 12 years old. The knocking and scratching commenced. One member of the party, hoping to catch Elizabeth Parsons in the act, insisted on sitting on part of the bed. Um, scratching Fanny sympathizers like Mary Fraser argued with the man, insisting that he sit with the rest of the audience. Mm. Mm, suspicious. Fishy, fishy. And uh, he refused. And the ghost also refused to knock and scratch the whole time he was sitting there. Interesting. Yeah. Um, the angry believers left the room in anger, abandoning Elizabeth Parsons to the unfriendly commission. Much time passed and the ghost made no sounds, but Elizabeth began convulsing. Um, the most dedicated of the crew stayed with the child through the entire night, hearing no sounds until 7.30 a.m. when they heard a faint scratching. The commission was not convinced, and they devised a plan to expose Elizabeth Parsons as a fraud. On January 22nd, after much resistance from Mr. Parsons, Elizabeth was taken to the house of a neutral party and placed in a bed in an otherwise empty room surrounded by strangers. No one that she knew personally was allowed to enter. The ghost... Failed to make an appearance. And the commission drank heavily out of boredom. So they were like, all wasted. Yeah, they were like, this is really boring. Let's just get toasted. At 6 a.m., the party heard a faint scratching. But then Elizabeth Parsons sat up in bed and burst into tears. When the men asked her what was wrong, she answered that she wanted to know what would become of her daddy, who must needs be ruined and undone if their matter should be supposed to be an imposture. Right. Imposter, meaning they were imposters. Kind mm -hmm. of. That's right. Um, so at this point, everything started to unravel for the Parsons. The commission asked the Lord Mayor to force Parsons to comply with their investigation. While Parsons played for time, the ghost sympathizers created elaborate scenes for onlookers designed to bolster support for their cause. One night, they made Elizabeth sleep in a hammock all night in front of a crowd as the knockings and scratchings continued unabated. This stunt convinced many that the sounds were supernatural and not fraudulent. The swell of approval did not last for long. On February 1st, the commission organized yet another seance designed to expose the Parsons once and for all. They were able to get the ghost to agree to meet the group down at the tomb where Fanny's body was interred. The ghost was supposed to knock on Fanny's tomb as a sign that it really was her spirit. The group was disappointed at the tomb when nothing happened. This, more than anything else, convinced the commission once and for all that Elizabeth Parsons was committing a fraud on the London public. I just think that's like that that's that's the test, you know, that's right. the real I don't know. That was so the weird. thing that put them over the edge. Yeah. Several more seances were performed all at different locations. Elizabeth Parsons was moved constantly to new rooms and among new faces so that she may not conspire with sympathizers to create more sounds. Finally, toward the end of February, the commission realized that lately the scratching and knocking sounds had changed. In earlier days, they had sounded like they were coming from the walls. But by this point, they knew the sound was coming from the bed. Elizabeth's body was searched thoroughly, and this time the commission found a hidden piece of wood that she had been using to produce whatever knocking and scratching sounds she could. Right, but they... They know that's not what was causing the sounds earlier because the sounds were different. Mm -hmm. And they think that she was like ventriloquizing weird knock sounds. Like somehow or something. transmitting them to sound like they were coming from somewhere yeah, else. Yeah, to sound like something was bouncing off the wall. Or yeah, whatever. yeah. Even John Moore, the Methodist clergyman who'd been the ghost's greatest benefactor, receded into humiliation. 
Um, he published a retraction in the local papers. The ordeal was finally over, but the story of the Cockling Ghost inspired countless pamphlets, plays, and essays in the following centuries. The satirists um, Charles Churchill and William Hogarth addressed the hoax in essays and sketches. Samuel Foote wrote a fictionalized drama about the Cockling Ghost called The Orators and... Charles Dickens mentions the Cockling Ghost in most of his books. Really? Yeah. In mo- and like not just in one. Yeah, and one of them he says like one of the characters' dads said he went to school with the Cockling Ghost, like meaning meaning Fanny. Oh, lines. interesting, interesting. Yeah. So it really kind of made an imprint on sort of the um, national psychology. Yeah, it, it, people were still sense? thinking about it. Mm-hmm. You know, a hundred years later. Right, right, right. One of the best parts of the play, The Orators, um, is when a court clerk reads the fictional indictment against Scratching Fanny. Fanny Phantom, you are indicted that on or before the first day of January, 1762, you, the said Fanny, did in a certain house in a certain street called Cock Lane in the county of Middlesex, maliciously, treacherously, wickedly, and willfully by certain thumpings, knockings, scratchings, and flutterings against doors, walls, wainscots, bedsteads, bedposts, disturb, annoy, assault, and terrify diverse, innocent, inoffensive, harmless, quiet, simple people residing in, at, near, or about the said Cock Lane and elsewhere in the said county of Middlesex to the great prejudice of said people in said county. How say you? Guilty or... And then her uh, lawyer interrupts arguing that his client is unable to plead because she's entitled to do so to a jury of her peers and that this jury was not her peers because they weren't ghosts. <laughs> Which is just really funny. Yeah, I don't know. British humor is just, like, the best. I don't yeah. know how to describe it, but it's like that all the yeah, time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so uh, what was it about the Cock Lane ghost that captivated their imaginations? Um, there, there are a few things, I think. The first is premarital sex. So everyone and their mother had opinions on the propriety of premarital sex. His extramarital relations were used against Kent in court, for example, to try to impeach his character. Um, Fanny herself was indicted in the court of public opinion for her sexual activity outside of marriage. One letter to, because as I said, there's many letters to the editor um, about the Cockling Ghost. Um, one letter to the St. John's Chronicle reads, quote, I cannot help declaring that I think all ghosts, and particularly your Cockling Ghost, are not only a very useless set of beings, but they do not enjoy a greater share of understanding when out of the flesh than they did when in the flesh. I can easily conceive that this good woman, good, you know, he's being sarcastic, this good woman who, I find you, either married her sister's husband or lived with your Mr. Kent in her virgin state, might in her lifetime be foolish enough to spend an hour or two of her nights in this amusement of scratching and knocking. But I'm much surprised to find she cannot employ that time better among her sister ghosts, <laughs> cousin fairies, and great-grandmother hobgoblins. Sick oh, burn. <laughs> snap. <laughs> Although that is kind of a funny thought that, like, you know, if you're really a ghost, if you're really a spirit on the other side, like, there's got to be some, like, compelling shit to do, right? You, gotta, you can, like, find out who really killed Kennedy, and you can, like, find out... You can go into, like, the White House and learn about all the secret rooms. Like, why bother scratching yeah. and knocking? Why not do interesting things? Right. Well. Talk to Jesus. Know? Talk to Buddha. 
Wow, you have lots. You thought about this extensively. Um, I have. So even um, even the ghost sympathizers, um, so people who thought the ghost was real, right. um, they argued that Fanny was being punished for living in sin, and that her sinful relationship with Kent made her vulnerable to his vicious murder plot. Right. Um, Fanny became a cautionary tale, warning against premarital sex. 18th century Brits were super into cautionary tales. Stories, poems, and songs were used to control the sexuality of young women particularly. Mary Adams, one of the first women to be executed at Tyburn. What's Tyburn? That's the place where people are hanged. It's just it's just like a hill in London. Where, in London. Okay. Like, yeah. One of the first women to be executed at Tyburn in 1702 became a cautionary tale for young female servants after her story was published in the Newgate Calendar in the 1770s. Adams purportedly served a household in Reading, whereby she became pregnant by the master's son. Her master reluctantly paid for her lying in, uh, her delivery. She afterwards went to London, where she went into the service again of a mercer in Cheapside. She began an affair with him as well, okay, uh, (laughs) became pregnant again, and left service for another lying in, which was then financed by that baby's father. In an attempt to change her destiny, she used the last of her ex-master's support to buy respectable garments and attract a suitor. Her new husband discovered her past transgressions and absconded, joining the Royal Navy. Her life devolved into one of sex work and petty crime. In 1702, she made the mistake of stealing a banknote, which was discovered, and and she was tried at the Old Bailey and executed at Tyburn on June 16, 1702. Though the story is highly embellished and therefore, you know, should be subject to scrutiny, it was circulated extensively in the 1770s and 1780s, presumably to scare young servants into refraining from sex. Fanny's story was shared in much the same way, so people could tisk tisk at hers and at Kent's indiscretions. Londoners were super paranoid about women feigning marriage. Um, body songs and pamphlets warning of women concealing pregnancy and feigning marriage to preserve their reputations abounded. There was lots of this stuff. Right. Um, I have a few stories from my own work that suggest this was incredibly common. Um, and I'll share a couple short ones because I can't resist. Uh, Mary Fenton, a wet nurse to a Colonel Knox at 25 York Place, represented herself as a married woman to Mrs. Knox during her interview, saying that her husband had gone abroad. Um, Fenton was recommended to the Knox family by a local physician who may or may not have been complicit in her deception. Once her tenure as wet nurse was finished, Mrs. Knox, happy with her behavior, recommended her to another service position. Fenton's deception went undetected until founding hospital investigators approached the Knoxes for corroboration of her story. Um, now, Mary Clark, she, um, this is a new woman, or she signed an affidavit stating that she was married so that she could be admitted into the British Lying-In Hospital in 1774. So this is when women first started giving birth in hospitals instead of at home, um, but you had to be married. In truth, she was an unmarried mother. She spontaneously admitted her crime shortly before dying in childbirth. On May 17, 1774, Mary Ainsley, these are all they're all named Mary, apparently, yeah. um, <laughs> petitioned the founding hospital, quote, having been delivered of a female child, being deluded by a man who promised marriage, but is gone and left me and my poor infant in a miserable and almost starving condition, having parted with everything but what is on my back. End so quote. in other words, this was Fontaine from Les Miserables. You're just making this up. 
I don't even know the story of Les Mis. What? But I know I'm a I terrible. I can sing it to you right now. I'm a terrible person. Sing the whole I know. I have seen the musical, but I haven't like read the. Pl- I haven't read it or anything. Like Neither I just. Have I don't. I. I've just listened to the musical 875. Yeah, I just story time. I know there's a guy in prison or something. I the French wrote, Revolution's happening or something, right? No, it's not actually. I, w- I always thought it was the French Revolution, but it's not. No, it's, it's one else. of the things after one of the when the students. This, it was like a student led. Revolution that oh, failed okay. really badly. Story time. It was. Uh, yes. Look it up right now. Um, in eleventh grade in New York State, as you are aware, you uh-huh. have to take the English Regents. Regents, yeah. And you have to write about things that you've read and whatever, and make arguments. I wrote my entire thing, my entire essay about Les Misérables. Mm-hmm. I had never read Les Misérables. <laughs> I based my entire essay on my encyclopedic knowledge of the musical. <laughs> And I got a 100. Wow. <laughs> and now I'm sure that Mrs. Kaya is listening to this and is like, curse you. Yes. She now she knows. Um, so, yeah. So Mary Ansley slash Fontina. No, this is for real. I mean, this is at least her story. Fontina is a cheese. Oh, okay. Fontine is a Fontine. woman. <laughs> Fontine. Fontine. Um, I didn't know Fontina was a cheese. It is a cheese. I'm thinking of Fontanelle. Fontanelle. Fontanelle is the thing on a baby's head. On a thing on a baby's head. We have gone some really interesting (laughs) places here. Very out of the way now. So remember, this is the woman who... who, um, Was deluded. Right. Well, she claims that she was, you know... uh, Tricked. Tricked, Mm -hmm. yeah. So the hospital clerk investigated her story and found that she and her baby's father had been living as husband and wife. Their landlord, Mr. Clark, had no idea they were not married until the baby's father absconded. So in a way, these Londoners who were had all this anxiety about women pretending to be married, mm-hmm. they were correct. Women were pretending to be married when they weren't. Right. Um, passing off their children as legitimate when they weren't. You know, this this was actually going on. Fanny Lines embodied this fear for people. She yeah. did she was pretending to be married to Mr. Kent. Nobody knew except eventually Mr. Parsons yeah, find yeah. out, found out. And now we all know their dirty laundry because of this huge story. Right. It, it gets into this um, similar, I think, in the United States, particularly in the American South. This is about um, like honor and, and being tricked. Like there's this real fear of being tricked. And if you are successfully tricked by people like this, that means something about you, not about them. Right. right. If you if you are yes. tricked into believing that these people are married, then yes. you are a less honorable, less respectable, respectable person. Yeah, you're an idiot. Mm-hmm. Right. Yep. There's also an element of fraud, much like people were su- Uh, suspicious that women were feigning marriage, 18th century Londoners were obsessed with the idea of fraud in all areas of life. There was incredible anxiety about the possibility that people were misusing credit, forging legal or financial documents, or feigning orthodoxy, when in reality, they were Methodists at heart. Mm, Man. (laughs) Reverend William Dodd, a chaplain was in attendance at one of the seances in Cock Lane, um, and he's a great example of why Londoners were so on edge about fraud. Dodd was known as the Macaroni Parson, <laughs> um, which was not was less about pasta and more about the fact that he was a dandy. That, right, like that's one, when um, you stuck a feather in his hat and called, called it macaroni. macaroni. Yeah, is not actually about right macaroni. macaroni. It's actually about being a dandy, being right. fancy. Yeah, right. 
He spent gobs of money on clothing, jewelry, and other extravagances. He accumulated significant debt. In 1777, so this is 15 years after the Cockley and Ghost incident, Dodd forged a bond for 4,200 pounds to clear his debts. After initially accepting the note, the banker discovered his fraud. After Dodd's arrest, 23,000 people signed a petition for leniency, but Reverend Dodd was nonetheless hanged at Tyburn in June of that year anyway. Oh, man. So that kind of fraud was a capital offense. Yeah. So forgery was a capital crime in the 18th century. Um, punishable by death. Um, Dodd's story shows how intent the state was on executing forgers. This is because Britain was experiencing phenomenal economic growth at this time. Remember, the Industrial Revolution started here and now. I do remember. Yeah, you do. Okay, good. I'm glad. Um, The stability of the British economy at this time depended on large part on personal credit. So this is before credit card companies and and all that jazz. People purchase goods based on their personal credit, their reputations. So if someone's reputation was impeached, they're unable to make purchases. It's Mm -hmm. it's kind of like as if their social standing and their credit score were just like, you know, determined by... Whether people trusted you personally, right. you know, your behavior, your face, your family, like, did your face look scary? I don't, you know, mm-hmm. like, just little things yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah. Um, so counterfeiting, forgery, deceit, these things were incredibly troubling to the British public. So that helps to explain why Johnson and the commission and the newspaper media were all so intent on exposing the Cock Lane ghost as a fraud. But... I think the other piece of this puzzle is this purely religious or spiritual. This event happened at a time when Anglicans and Methodists were actively debating the existence of the supernatural and the appropriateness of spiritual enthusiasm. Scratching Fanny played at the hearts of people who needed there to be something more than just this life, right? This rational world that we live in. There needs to be um, what, what I think... A lot of Christians today, not all, but a lot of Christians today call mystery, right? There needs to be a mystery to the universe. right. Um, But it also amplified the conflict within the Church of England over Methodist practice. Right. So there's all this stuff kind of going on in this society at this time, this fear about fraud. There's credit agencies that are starting up and people are taking things out on credit. There's a national deficit. There's never been one before. There's all this... Um, you know, the, the Church of England is kind of splitting and Methodists are leaving. There's kind of all this stuff going on. And the Cockley and Ghost story just so happened to, like, you know, right. fit in this little niche of society so well. And it resonated with so many people. People were obsessed with it. Yeah. I mean, it's sort of, it's like, I mean, there are crimes people, like cereal. People are obsessed with, you know, right. Adnan and hey. It's, yeah. There's just something about it that, that people, it's just like a hit. You know, people can't right, right. stop talking about yeah. it. Especially when it fed into existing anxieties, right? right. It, it it meshed with what people were already talking and thinking about. Right. Um, I mean, this also makes me think of the other season of cereal, which is about... Um, Bo Bergdahl. Bo Bergdahl, right? And I the... There's a reason that the Bo Bergdahl case resonates with people and it has become an obsession with people. And that's because it gets into the legitimacy of the Iraq and Afghanistan wars mm-hmm. and mental health and masculinity and military culture, all things that we are also super anxious about. Right. So these yeah. crimes kind of feed into that. Right. Exactly. And people use it as an example, like, oh, this is what this is what 
men like this I really like or whatever. Right. I mean, it's yeah. and that's exactly with with this ghost. And they were like, oh, see, like this woman, she was like an unmarried woman shacking up with this right. guy. And this is what happened. They use it in various ways, yeah. too, because it's not just about gender and it's not just about sex. It's also about fraud and economics and and credit and like there's got like multiple layers to a ghost story right which is really really interesting that's why it's awesome that's why the 18th century is the best it's not but okay. it's the best but it's the best and it starts feeding into that whole um spiritualism movement in the 19th century that's so. actually the other thing that i wanted to raise here was that we so often I, I never have thought of seances earlier than the 19th century. Yeah. Yeah. And this is been. why you, I think with a good reason, are always saying when we talk about something something that was unique, we say was unique to the 19th century, the right. spiritualism, in our spiritualism episode, you actually said, like, none of this is new. Yeah. None right. of this is new in the 19th century. People are doing this in the 18th century. Right. Yeah. But they're doing it in England. Um, right. We're doing and it so, and Americanists are in their own little American bubble a lot of times. Yeah. yeah. I, and I think that that's a really fair criticism because I would never think about seances happening before the mid-19th century. Right. And I think, and you probably have never really thought about the English part of Methodism. Like, I know you know George Whitfield and all of that right. stuff. And no, I... The First Great Awakening. I never did. And, yeah. I always thought about Methodism as a kind of uniquely American religion. Right. You don't think of it, yeah. As, I just like to ignore Europeanists yes. as much as possible. <laughs> That's something that historians do. Yes. I guess. So... That's this is what I'm bringing to the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, is that that it's, bitchy thing of this has happened before. Yeah, like, it's yeah. interesting too because a lot of these same anxieties happen in the United States. They just happen a little bit later. There's right. always this yeah. lag between English culture and American culture that, you know, there are huge concerns and and worries about fraud and um and people passing themselves off as things that they aren't. Um, but that all happens sort of in the early 19th century rather than in the 18th century. Well, I think it follows the economy. Mm -hmm. And that's when the American economy was kind of catching up to the rest of Northwestern Europe, at least. And so everything's happening, you know, a little later. Right. But, yeah. And I think America is, America is very much so an Anglo sort of culture. So I see a lot of that, too. A Mm -hmm. lot of the same things. Obviously... England and the United States are not the same, right. um, but there's a lot of similarities yeah. when it comes to patterns of culture and society. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay, I think that's all we have, right? Super interesting. Scratching Fanny and Cock Lane. Scratching, <laughs> I know. It's like they did it on purpose. They're so ridiculous. I know. Um, so, yeah, that's it. So please go over um, to iTunes and review us. Check us out. Unless on, you're mean. Yeah, unless you're mean. Then don't review us because F you. And then, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> don't, no. Just continue to be a human in the world without being mean to other humans in the world. Right. For no reason. Because who does that? Because you know what happened to Fanny? Yeah, she right. was She was bad and she died. Right. <laughs> no, actually, Kent was a jerk and she died. he was accused of murder. Right. I okay, guess that's so the takeaway. That's the, that's the better okay. analogy. So, yes, check us out on Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest. Twitter. Twitter. Dig underscore history and check out our show notes at digpodcast.org and we have transcripts for every show um make them a little bit more accessible and they're also really useful in the classroom if you're assigning these i know some people have said that they've assigned episodes so we always have a transcript there for you to use as well 
Absolutely. So um, that's all for today. We will catch you on the flip side. Yeah. As April says, catch you on the flip flop. Catch you on the flip flop. Bye. Bye. Elizabeth Bynes. Haunting. Oh, my God. Did I say Bynes? Yeah. Her maid, Carrots, had witnessed this poisoning. Her maid, Carrots. (laughs) (laughs) You know what I mean? Yeah. Okay. And the commission drank heartily out of the bedroom. One letter. One letter. I cannot help declaring that I think all ghosts, and particularly... <laughs> particularly... <laughs> See you at... Uh, uh, in another time. <laughs> Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.